This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I have a fun fact regarding today's show. I typically choose all of the guests myself, the celebrities, authors, musicians, personalities, and thought leaders that come on this program. But this time around, I had a great tip from my producer, Olivia Weatherall, about a fabulous potential guest the award-winning songwriter, arranger, and producer, Jim Balance. I asked her to pitch me why this would make for a great show. And she said, and I quote, Jim Balance has written the soundtrack of Canadians' lives. He is the -the behind-the-scenes songwriter that has inspired some of the most influential and talented musicians out there, and the legacy of his music continues to inspire new generations. Not bad, eh? (laughs) That's a lovely review. And true. And she was absolutely right. Olivia, our producer, was right. And the more I started researching Jim, the more I knew that he was the perfect guest for our show, an unsung hero that really everyone should know about. And I'm so delighted to introduce him momentarily. But first, I want to tell you a little bit more about Jim Valance. So Jim Valance is a musician, an arranger, producer, and songwriter whose credits include Brian Adams, Aerosmith, Tom Jones, Hart, Alice Cooper, Anne Murray, Ozzy Osbourne, Tina Turner, Joan Jett, and hundreds of other recording artists. When you look up Jim Valance, there is no shortage of superstars literally singing his praises. Steven Tyler has called him a master of songwriting. And Taylor Swift has described Jim's song, Summer of 69, as, and I quote, one of my favorite songs ever written. Jim is the recipient of multiple Junos, dozens of international gold and platinum album awards, ASCAP, BMI, and SOCAN awards, and he became a member of the Order of Canada in 2007. Congratulations on that. Last year, Jim was also inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame for his incredible body of work alongside Brian Adams, David Foster, Alanis Morissette, and Danielle Lavoie. Jim Valance, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Great to have you. As I mentioned, Jim, you were inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame last year at the end of 2022. So first of all, congratulations on that as well. That's incredible. The event was hosted at Massey Hall with a theatre full of fans and Canadian artists like Charlotte Cardin, Chad Kruger, Corey Hart, Bobby Bazzini and many more, all singing your songs. In a speech you made that night, you explained that in 1964, at the tender age of 11 years old, you saw the Beatles on TV and were blown away. And you knew in that moment that was what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. And from my research that up until this moment, you were like a regular kid who was into comics and into sports. But that night on television, something changed for you. Can you explain to us what it was about seeing the Beatles that was transformative for you and, and the impact that show had on the rest of your life? Wow. Well, I was 11 years old. 
I'm 71 now, and to be honest, I don't think I've even yet recovered from that evening all those years ago. So as you mentioned, music wasn't on my radar. I was uh, into comic books, and uh, I liked watching the New York Yankees and the Toronto Maple Leafs. I liked sports. And then just one night, one Sunday night, watching TV, as the family always did. Sunday nights we had dinner, then it was the Walt Disney show, and then Ed Sullivan later on. And this one night, it was like, ladies and gentlemen, from Liverpool, Beatles. And it was like, what? These four guys on my little black and white TV that looked strange, sounded strange, uh, like nothing I'd ever seen before. And, and I knew right at that moment that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. There was just no doubt. It just blew me away. That's so incredible. And I think your parents had a hand in also making this possible for you. And I think that's a very important thing to note is that you need support when you want to do something like this. And I understand that you took piano lessons at age seven and guitar and drums at the age of 13. I have a daughter who's a singer and musical theater performer living in New York City. So I know, extremely talented. I know how important, Lily Liebrack is her name, how important it is to have people behind you that are supporting you. So did your parents and the adults around you understand how much this dream meant to you? And do you attribute your early success to their support and nurturing of your early career? Well, that's a really powerful question, and it's going to be a long answer. So initially, no. Initially, no, my parents didn't quite understand what had happened that night. From that moment on, all I was interested in and all I cared about was music. So I started asking, even begging, for a drum kit. That was the first thing I wanted. I wanted to play drums. Mm-hmm. So I, I yes. tried to get a drum kit. My parents just kind of let it go for a bit. And finally, when I was 13, bless her soul, my grandmother bought me a drum kit. And then I think that Christmas, my parents bought me a guitar. So age of 13, I now had a guitar and a drum kit. And at school, as I was in grade eight, I met another fellow who played guitar, and we used to practice lunch hours in the band room. And then I met some other fellows in school, and then we had enough of us to actually form a band. There were four or five of us. So that was uh, through grade eight, grade nine, grade 10. I was in bands in school. And to my parents' credit, they let me go out on weekends and play dances with my band. So I'd get home at one o'clock in the morning. I was 13. The other guys in the band were a bit wow. older and they had driver's licenses. So that was quite a, a stretch for my parents. And I, I really appreciate that they permitted that, that I went out with these older guys for all ungodly hours of the night on weekends. But I did that every weekend through high school. That was kind of my spending money was, you know, I remember the very first gig I did, I was 13. We got paid $2.50 each. And I just thought, Really? You can get paid to do this? Wow. I'm, I'm sold. So um, wow. so everything was fine. My, my parents were, I don't know if I would call it supportive, but let's call it, um, they, they permitted me to, to have this hobby. But then when it came time for universities, we we're now in, in grade 12 and starting to look at universities and, and making plans. And I said, I don't want to go to university. I, I want to be a musician. And that's when things really changed. They were, they were horrified. It's like, well, you, you, you can't do that. You, you can't make a living at it. And I said, well, I, I, I want to try. And so, with, you know, to make a longer story short, finally the, the compromise was 
I will go to university, but only if I can study music. So I went to the University of British Columbia, a music department. Yes. Um, I only went for one year. It was, you know, I learned a lot, but it really wasn't what I needed. I needed to be out in the real world, playing real music with real people in real situations. So I dropped out after the first year and then started my career as a musician and proved my parents right. I didn't make a living at it. I, I, I starved. <laughs> I, I recently I kept a diary for a few years back then. I recently came across a diary entry that I'd completely forgotten about. And I've just come back from buying groceries. I have 25 cents. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, <laughs> so my parents were right. You, you can't make a living at it. But I, I did not want to prove them right. And I just kept at it. And then, um, you know, things started to come together in my mid to, to late 20s. So I think this is important. If there's any parents listening, let me echo what you said is how important it is for parents to, first of all, yes. recognize passion and then jump on it. You know, just do everything they can. It doesn't matter what your child is interested in. If it's horseback riding, hockey, music, ballet, just, just if they show any passion in anything, jump on it. Because passion is the whole thing. I think that's the secret to it. It's the whole thing. A happy and productive life. It's so true. And when it's passion married with talent, you know, chances are with a lot of hard work and hard work is a big component as well. In fact, that night in your speech, when you were inducted, you said, 60 years later, I feel blessed to say music is the only job I've ever had. That is pretty awesome to be able to say that so resolutely. I'm so grateful. I really am so grateful. It's really incredible. I want to go back for a minute. So in 1965, you did form a band with your classmates called the Tremolones, which later was renamed the Foremost. And as you mentioned, at 18, you enrolled in UBC. You studied piano, flute, and cello. And then you had this chapter that I'd like to call the Prism Years. So you spent a stint in the band Prism under the stage name Rodney Higgs. But this was during the time that you also became passionate about writing and producing songs more than being a performer. I believe you were drumming at the time. What made you say, I want to write it, I want to produce it, I want to create it, I don't want to just be one of the players? Well, that was always sort of my intent. When I started to sort of really dig into Beatle recordings, so first of all, I was just a, a fan of the, of the songs and the band. But in my teens, especially once I got the drums and the guitar, I started reading the small print and finding out what was behind it. So I knew that John and Paul wrote most of the songs. And then I started to learn that George Martin did the production and and the arrangements, and Jeff Emmerich was the engineer. So the more I dug into the fine print, the more interested I got in the process. So, you know, I, I started fairly early on uh, wanting to be not so much a performer, but more a behind-the-scenes guy. So I, mm -hmm. I ended up in this band, Prism, which the band that came before Prism was called Sunshine. So Sunshine morphed into Prism, and they started writing and recording and trying to get a record deal. And they they couldn't. They just couldn't get traction at all. So Bruce Fairburn, my bandmate from Prism, yes. called me up. And he didn't invite me to rejoin, but he said, you've been doing some writing, haven't you? Do, do you have any songs that maybe we could record? So I gave Prism a couple of my songs, and they and they got a record deal right away. And... I got back into the band, which was lovely. So I was now the, the drummer and the primary songwriter. 
And we made an album, and it was quite successful. And we went on tour, and that's when I discovered I really didn't want to be a band member. It, it was <laughs> it was low budget in the beginning. It was five guys in a rental car, <laughs> staying in cheap motels and eating uh, tacos from uh, gas stations. Um, it really wasn't my idea of a good time. So I left the band after a year, and have never again, you know, wanted to be or attempted to be a uh, a band member, just, you know, a behind the scenes guy, which is really what I always wanted. Yeah. Okay. So let's fast forward to one of my favorite stores, Long and McQuaid. And you're having this chance encounter here in 1978, where really I think your life and this person's life that I'm about to say changed. You met Brian Adams. He's 18 years old at the time. I believe he'd been emerging on the music scene in Vancouver in a band called Sweeney Todd. 45 years later, you're still both working together. But I just wanted to ask you what it was like when you met in this music store in Vancouver. Like, was there chemistry right away? What happened upon that first meeting? Brian was living with his mom just down the road, literally a five-minute walk from London Quay. And he had quit his band, Sweeney Todd, and he was, uh, I guess, unemployed is the best way to <laughs> To put it, as was I, I had quit prison. And I was there with my friend, Ali Monroe. I don't even remember why we were there, buying guitar strings. I mean, I, it's so long ago, I don't recall. But Ali knew Brian. So when we walked in the store, she went, oh, Brian, how are you doing? And then we ended up having a chat. She introduced me to Brian. And I was aware of him just peripherally from him being in Sweeney Todd. And he knew a little bit about me from having me having been in prison. So we kind of just had a pretty brief chat. And chemistry, I, I think there was a sense that we were kind of on the same page or at least on the same journey. You know, both of us kind of, you know, wandering at the moment with no real plan. So I said, you know, why don't we get together and, you know, have a chat or something. So he came over to my house a few days later. We exchanged phone numbers. And here we are, you know, whatever it's been, 45 or so years later, we're still, we're still, you know, the closest friends. We're, he's the brother I never had. Wow. Isn't that incredible? I don't know if our audience realizes some of the hits that you are behind, Jim. Things like Summer of 69, What About Love. We're going to be playing some of these for you later on in the show. Heaven, Run to You, and many more. And You've worked with numerous artists, as we said off the top, but most notably your longstanding collab with Brian Adams is pretty incredible. And I know that after you met, you guys got together a week later and wrote a song. And the next day, another song. And the day after, another song. So very early on, like in that first week together, did you realize this songwriting partnership was going to be not only successful, but was going to change your lives. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can ever see or predict the future. You're only in the moment. But in, in the moment, it was certainly aware, uh, apparent to me that Brian had huge talent, a huge drive. I mean, he was unstoppable. He was so tenacious and so talented. And of course, you know, that, that first few days we spent together that, that were so productive, it was clear that we had you know, musical chemistry. We shared a, a work ethic. Um, I mean, for all, all of our time writing together, especially in, in the early days, it was almost a, a bit of a joke. Who was the first one who was going to say at 11, a, 11 p.m. or midnight or 1 a.m., listen, I, I'm tired, can we stop? 
So neither of us wanted to be. So we worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. We really, again, the work ethic was, I think, what, what bonded us as much as anything. There was, we, we were both unstoppable. Wow. But you can't. No, I, I, I never. Even our biggest songs, when, you know, Summer 69, I think, is maybe the best example. Even when we finished that song and just sat in the room, the two of us, who, would, who were the only two who had ever heard the song, you, you couldn't imagine that 40 plus years later it would still be, you know, on the radio or being performed in concert or someone like Taylor Swift would say it was her favorite song. So, yeah. no, everything's in the moment. You just do your best work on that day and whatever comes of it, you know, if it's, if it's a hit, you're beyond grateful. And, and if it isn't, you try harder next time. But there must have been some magic, though, because when two creative people get together, it isn't always easy. I mean, let's look at the Beatles as an example. It's hard work. I mean, you can be a duo for 10 years, 20 years, but 45 years. There's got to be some magic. Is it giving into the other person and just being very chill? And what, what do you think is the secret behind this partnership other than the tenaciousness, the talent, the drive and the friendship, of course, which developed? But there has to be something in your personalities that just gelled yeah i think there's a lot of trust and honesty so if you know two guys in a room tossing ideas back and forth and if i tossed in an idea that wasn't great brian would say you know that's not great and vice versa and we trusted each other so it was there was no ego no competition it was when we were collaborating on a song it's the best idea wins no matter who came up with it because at the end of the day, that's going to be the best possible song. So, yeah, a lot of, lot of trust, a lot of honesty, and a lot of respect. I, I mean, I have huge respect for Brian as a person and as a musician and as a talent. Cuts Like a Knife was, was Adam's breakthrough album released in 1983. It established him as a legitimate music star, and it also established the Adam's Valance songwriting team, as it were. How did your career change after the launch of that record? So by that time... Cuts Like a Knife was Brian's third album. And each album did a bit better than the previous one, which, of course, you know, yes. it is how you would like things to progress. And I think we were getting better as songwriters, and Brian was getting better as an artist. Yes. But again, you can't plan, you can't predict, you can't wish anything to happen. But Cuts Like a Knife was the, the album and the song that got Brian across the border, really. Because again, you can have a career in Canada, but you know there's only 35 million people here, and there's 350 million in the in the U.S. and and you know billions outside. So you really want to break out of Canada, and and mm -hmm. that proved elusive for the first two albums. But as I've heard it, and I'm not sure the story is 100% correct, but uh, with the Windsor Detroit connection, I <laughs> believe there was a DJ in Detroit who was familiar enough with Canadian music and what was going on across the border that he started playing Cuts Like a Knife. And that started to get Brian some motion on radio. And plus, around that time, he was also touring, opening for Journey, and that, you know, brought him to a larger audience. So just everything kind of, you know, the stars all lined up in 83 for Brian. Things started to, mm -hmm. to happen. And guess like, Cuts Like a Knife was the, the album that kind of broke him outside of Canada. I alluded to this uh, before the show when we were in the virtual green room together and I talked about the magic number three. So 
after you started working with Brian Adams over the next 11 years, the team, as it were, of Brian Adams and Jim Valance was beyond productive, releasing three platinum selling albums featuring nine singles, which reached the top 15 of the Billboard Hot 100. What was your first platinum album like? Like when you, when you, like, these are not just like, you know, passing fancies. Like th- these are big, big things, big career milestones. When you went platinum, oh, did you just go, oh my God. Yeah, it's, it's a pinch me moment, you know, and to get a number one song on the, on the Billboard chart is almost unfathomable. Brian was touring, I remember, and I was in Vancouver, and we started to watch the song Heaven go up the charts, and it was like, you know, 80, and then 64, and then 32, and it just kept going. It's like, gosh. And we're talking on the phone, and I said, listen, if it goes to number one, I will fly to wherever you are on that day, and we'll we'll celebrate. And um, Yeah, and it was uh, Cincinnati where Brian was performing the day that um, Heaven went to number one. So I flew out and, and, and we celebrated. So, yeah, again, nothing, it was such a, <laughs> a joy, just so unbelievable. That's so great. I think, and I, and I just want the audience to understand this, that there's obviously many benefits that both of you gained from the partnership. Of course, these songs that you wrote together were used for Adam's solo career, but as well, they served as a source of income for licensing songs to other artists. Can you explain what that means? Because I think that was a really important part of this as well. You mean writing songs for others? Yes. Yeah. But because um, of the success, there was an interest, right? Yeah. So once Brian's album started being successful, you know, we got approached to write songs for other artists, like uh, Joe Cocker comes to mind and, and Tina Turner. And then, I mean, from for myself, independent of Brian, later there was Aerosmith and others. But yeah, once you're on the charts, then... It's managers and record companies that take notice, and they're the ones that approach you. Because um, a lot of artists don't write. Like Joe Cocker doesn't write songs. Tina Turner doesn't write songs. So these people need songs, so they come to songwriters. So Brian and I started getting approached to write songs for other artists, which was a whole other thrill. I mean, Kiss, even though they do write their own songs, one of our very first successes was writing, I think it was way back in 1982, even before Brian's own big success uh, kiss asked us to write a couple of songs uh, and that was a big boost for us as as songwriters at that time that's so cool what are your memories of tina turner do you have a great tina turner story oh gosh i mean well i mean the first time i encountered her and i mean everyone knows her story how you know she had early success with uh, ike and tina turner and then ike her husband was really abusive and she she left him and she was destitute for a number of years. She was um, mm-hmm. penniless and and in dire straits. I believe she wow. was even like cleaning hotel rooms or something. Oh, wow. And the first time I met her was 1980, when she was still in her, you know, not quite there um, mode. I mean, she uh, way before her later success. And I was Tom Jones' drummer at the time. And Tom had a TV show, and he had a number of guests on, and one of them was Tina Turner. So, um, I mean, that was a, a real treat working with her that that uh, early early period and her sort of reinventing her career. But it wasn't until '84 that Brian invited her to uh, do a duet uh, on a song called "It's Only Love," and we were in Vancouver, and Tina came in the studio, and the song had been written not with a duet in mind, it was written just for Brian's solo vocal. And he had already actually sung it and was ready to be released. But at the last minute, 
Tina came along and, and offered her, her services as a, as a duet. And she came in the studio that day and we ran through the track and she went out in the studio and she sang it and it was in the wrong key for her. And we went, oh no, this isn't going to work. And then Tina said, just roll the tape back. Let me, let me try it one more time. And she took the liberty of taking the melody up three notes and just nailed it. And that was in her range. And we were just like electrified sitting in the control room watching oh her performance. And she was just so lovely and, and generous and, you know, energetic. I mean, she just gave it a thousand percent. Just, just amazing to watch her actually sing. So amazing. Wow. Wow. So fabulous. Thanks for sharing that story. What drives you so relentlessly? Because I see that perfectionist in you. What do you think that's all about? Well, there is no perfect, but I think you can at least uh, aim for it. You know, I mean, my dad said something great years ago. He said, any job worth doing is worth doing well. So I approach everything, whether whether I'm washing dishes or, or writing a song, I approach everything with how, how good a job can I do. And again, I, I've never done anything perfectly, but I always give it my, my best. And it shows, and it absolutely shows. So let's talk about this song, your hit song with Brian Adams, Summer of 69, which was released in 1984. It's one of those anthems that everyone knows the words to. But what a lot of people don't know, so I found this fascinating in doing some research, is that the song wasn't originally called Summer of 69. It was called Best Days of My Life. And the phrase Summer of 69 only happened once in the first verse in one lyric. And you've said that initially it was just about friends, hanging out, school, going to the drive-in, meeting girls, all of that stuff. And you actually changed the title of the song to the Summer of 69, but you literally had to shoehorn, I love this story, the lyrics into the gaps of the song. How did you do that? And what made you change the title to the Summer of 69? Well, we thought the song was finished and we were writing songs for what would be Brian's Reckless album. So we finished this song called Best Days of My Life. Then we moved on to the next song, and the next song, and the next song. And at some point we went back and had another look. I think it was weeks or even months later. And we just, again, in, in pursuit of, of excellence, we just thought, I'm not sure we've got the best title there, Best Days of, of My Life. It just didn't resonate. Mm-hmm. And, and there was this one little phrase in the first verse, you know, on my first real six ring, it was the summer of 69. And we thought, you know, summer of 69, the alliteration, <laughs> summer of 69. It just rolled off the tongue beautifully. <laughs> and so we literally found a few more spots in the song because, you know, one of the, not rules, but the part of the craft of, of songwriting that makes a song successful, I, I think, is, you know, having a memorable title and having the title repeat you know, at least four or five times in the song so that, that the listener kind of retains that that memory. That's really important. So again, we just literally inserted the phrase Summer 69 in three or four more spots in the song. And it suddenly it made sense. And again, there's just two guys sitting in a room. No one else had heard the song. So there's no way to know if it was going to be a hit or not. But for the two of us, you know, you, you have to write songs that you like. And then just yes. hope and pray that everybody else likes it too. So at that moment, we went from sort of liking the song to really liking the song once we'd made that <laughs> change. So we knew we'd, we'd improved it. 
Yeah. That's so cool. What I also think is interesting is that in the actual summer of 1969, Brian Adams was only 10 years old. So was this song, in fact, inspired by your own summer of 69? Well, actually, it was my own summer of 65. So when Brian and I sat down, you know, every time you sit down to write a song, you just sit there with two empty notepads sitting across from each <laughs> other. And you, the first conversation you have is what do you want to write about? Or do you have any ideas or do you have anything you've already started? And I think we literally just sat there. Neither of us had anything concrete. And we just had to talk about, well, yeah, let's, let's write a uh, Well, actually, it was the Beatles had uh, John Lennon wrote uh, Strawberry Fields about his childhood in Liverpool. Hmm. There was a, um, it's actually, I think, a, an insane asylum across the street from where, where he lived. And they could, he used to climb over the wall and there was a beautiful garden he used to play in. And it was called Strawberry Fields. So Brian and I thought, let's let's write our song about our our childhood, plural hoods, <laughs> um, each of which were different. So my sort of formative years as a young budding musician was in, in and around 1965, and Brian's budding years were a bit later because he was seven years younger than me. But you know that didn't matter. We were both writing from this, you know drawing from the same experiences and, and influences and so on and. Whenever anyone says, you know, you know, Brian was only 12 or something in 69, I say, well, Robbie Robertson wasn't even born when he wrote when Civil War happened and he wrote The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down about 1865. So I think you have poetic license to write about any time period that you want. So when we got to the end of it, it was like summer, even though it was my summer of 65 and Brian's summer of, I'm not sure, 1975 or whatever, we, you know, we ended up calling it summer of 69 and and that summer i mean even though we don't really reference it in the song per se but summer 69 i mean you know woodstock music festival and i remember sitting watching tv neil armstrong you know you were gonna say that and, yeah landing on the moon yeah yeah and um gosh what else? um beatles abbey road album was released so that it was a pretty powerful year 69 it's nice to, to commemorate it. Thank you for this. I'd love to share that hit song, Summer of 69, with our listeners. But first, we're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, and I'm here with songwriter Jim Balance, and we've been talking about how Jim and Brian Adams created the masterpiece, Summer of 69. So without further ado, let's have a listen to Summer of 69. 
to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Oh, my God. I love that song. It is impossible to hear that song without singing along. It's really incredible. Do you still get nostalgic when you hear that, even though I've, you've probably heard it a million times? But do you still have like this nostalgic feeling? Well, yeah. I mean, it's again, it's lovely to have it all these years later still resonate for people. I mean, I actually literally like three or four days ago, went to uh, Madison Square Garden in New York and saw Brian perform for 20,000 people. And, you know, one of my sort of private secret joys is sitting anonymously in the audience and, and watching 20,000 people sing along with something I helped write, Aww. you know, 45 years ago. I just got the chills when you said that. <laughs> I turned to my son. What's that? I just got the chills when you said that. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm visualizing it. I know. It's, it's just... You know, for me, I never get tired of it. It's, it's magical. But I went with my son, who's now 33. As Brian's performing the song, I turned to my son and said, that song uh, paid for your college. <laughs> and, and, and he said, I didn't go to college. <laughs> it was a, actually, he, it, was, it was a private joke. He didn't go to college, and that song didn't. <laughs> That's fat. You know what I also love about that song? I mean, so many things, but I love that it's happy. And I don't know why, but I always feel when I listen to songwriters that heartbreak often has to be one of the common denominators for a hit song. But here we have this song about life and passion and growing up. So can you write a song when you're happy or is it really easier to write it when you're heartbroken? Gosh, what a question. I've never really thought about that song being happy, although I agree it is. But I don't think we decided that day, let's write a happy song. And I'm not sure we ever decided ever, let's write a sad song. It's just, you know, whatever moves you in, in, in the moment. But but yeah, it's, it's an up song. Maybe that's part of its success is it's uplifting and, and yeah, positive. Absolutely. I, I think you're onto something. So I have an uncle that always asks me, Judy, it's great to talk to the celebrities and the authors and the musicians and the songwriters and singers, but I want to know what the process is. Like, really get in there and tell me what the process is. So I'm just curious about your process. Well, I'm not, again, you just pointed to the fact that it's never the same twice. And I don't think there's any, anything general I can point yes. to, but kind of all of the above. So I sometimes when I'm walking, uh, an idea will occur to me, or if I'm driving, it, or if I'm in the shower. I mean, some, it's always in the most unlikely, <laughs> unexpected places. And it's literally a couple of words, a, a phrase of lyrics or a very short burst of melody, like two to three seconds. So there you are, you've got your little tiny kernel of an idea, a seed, and you go into a room with another human being and you're going to write a song. So sometimes the first thing that happens, well, an example is say Aerosmith, uh, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, the very first day I met them, I'd never met them before ever, he came to my house, and my studio was in my, my basement. And, you know, it's, it's awkward because I'm a huge fan, you know, and suddenly Steven Tyler's in your, in your oh house. God. So you have to get over the, the kind of nervousness that you're experiencing and not let them see that you're nervous. <laughs> and after we had a little bit of a chat and got acquainted and talked about musical influences, we discovered we were all fans of the Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and that kind of broke the ice. So we sat down, and as is often the case, 
It was like anybody got any ideas by which it means you have one of those little kernels, you know, do you have a nugget of an idea? And Joe Perry had a riff, a guitar riff, mm. and it was very just static. It was just dun, 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 didn't go anywhere beyond that. But I said to Joe, so there's like your, your little three-second thing. I said to Joe, keep playing that over and over. And I picked up my bass, and I played some different bottom notes under his riff. And so now Joe and I are, are playing, and then Stephen starts singing nonsense lyrics to Joe's riff, you know, la, 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 la. <laughs> And so with that, you know, over a period of, 10 minutes, it starts to coalesce and sound like the beginnings of a song. And then literally by, by dinner time, we had pretty much the song mapped out. Not lyrics, but the melody, the chord structure, the, you know, the feel. And then the next day, I don't think Joe came the next day, but Stephen and I went out in the backyard. It was a nice sunny day, and we sat at the picnic table with blank notepads, and we wrote most of the lyrics of the song. The next day, so over the period of two two and a half days, we we wrote a song called Ragdoll, and it ended up being you know a, a hit for for Aerosmith. But I think that's maybe a, an example of the process. And again, it's never the same twice. But it usually starts with one little nugget. And you know, on the same topic, uh, what about love? A song that I wrote that ended up being recorded by Heart. I wrote the song with two Toronto musicians, Brian Allen and Sharon Alton, who were in the band Toronto. And we went down to their basement where they had a little studio. And again, the first thing is, anybody got any ideas? And I said, I've just got this one idea where it's single note. Like, you know how John Lennon said, all you need is love? It's one note. I said, what about, what about love? How about just one, one note? Those three words. What about love? And that's all we had. And two or three hours later, we had the whole song. So it's just, if I could explain it, I would, but it's even mysterious to me. But it's just, it starts like planting a seed and adding water and fertilizer, and it just, you let it grow. You let it take you somewhere. I think you did a stunning job, by the way, of making it very evocative. I could really picture it, and I think I hope our listeners can as well. It's amazing. You've collaborated with rock stars like Kiss, as you mentioned, Aerosmith, Joan Jett, all these incredible, incredible artists. But what I found fascinating as well is that you also made a recent foray into musical theater in 2018. You co-wrote the Pretty Woman musical soundtrack with Brian Adams. Can you tell us more about that project and what it was like making a musical? And did that differ greatly from songwriting or was is it all the same? It was it was different. Sitting in a room with Brian or, or Stephen or Ozzy, you're driving the bus. You can decide what you want to write about, how it's going to sound, where it's going to go. Lots of wiggle room, lots of creative license, mm-hmm. and you're just there to please the two of you or the three of you, however many are in the room. With musical theater, there is a, in, in the case of Pretty Woman, there's a pre existing film, a pre existing script, a pre existing storyline, and then a director who has some very, very firm ideas about he, how he wants this to turn out, and, and he's driving the bus. So it was a lot of song writing and then a lot of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Mm-hmm. And again, with an album, 
like Reckless, Brian and I spent on and off the better part of a year putting Reckless together and a few detours along the way. Wrote a song for Tina Turner, wrote a song for Rod Stewart, but we always sort of came back to to the Reckless plan. That was about a year. Pretty Woman was three years of nothing else but Pretty Woman. (laughs) And as I say, lots of writing, but also lots of rewriting. So there was 20 songs in the finished production. I think we wrote 40 to get 20. Oh, my God. Uh, We'd write a song, and the director would like it for a little while, and then change his mind, and (laughs) then we'd write another one. And then even the 20 that ended up in the production, we probably rewrote each of those 20 songs three times. So there's maybe, not that there's 60 songs there, but you know there was lots of sort of adjustments and, and changes. So I started off quite enthused and enjoying the challenge. And I was you know a little outside my comfort zone and on a steep learning curve, but I love a challenge. So the first year was fun. Second year was fun and work. And the third year was just work. And I was I almost quit a couple of times. It was a very, very demanding, strenuous, stressful process. Grueling, grueling. One of my favorite songs of yours, Jim, is What About Love? You originally wrote this in 1982 for the band Toronto. And years later, you'd forgotten about the song. You get this call from Don Grierson at Capitol Records in L.A. He tells you that a new band, Heart, has recorded What About Love as their first single. Can you tell us more about that? And then I want to play it for our audience. Well, when I wrote the song with Brian and Sharon, I was, you know, quite pleased. I thought we had, we had done good work. And I think there were 15 songs in all for the Toronto album. And the band were democratic. So they kind of sat down before the album was released and decided which 12 songs would go on the album. And I think What About Love was song number 13. So it was projected from the Toronto album. This is back in 82. So the song kind of just went on a shelf. And I, I literally forgot about it. I completely forgot about the song for three entire years or, or so. And then in 1985, I got this phone call from Don Grierson in Los Angeles saying, congratulations, you've got the first single off the new Heart album. And I went, what <laughs> song is that? <laughs> and he said, what about love? And I'd completely forgotten about it. So what had happened in the interim was Toronto's label went bankrupt, Solid Gold Records, and they were acquired by EMI Music. And one of the publishers at EMI, Michael McCarty, listened to every single song that they had acquired from the Solid Gold catalog. And he came across What About Love? And he thought it was appropriate for Hart. He sent it to Don Grierson. And here's the part I didn't realize until years later when I read Hart's biography. So Don Grierson sent it to Ron Nevison, who was Hart's producer. And in Seattle, Ron played the song for Anna and Nancy Wilson, the, the two sisters in heart, and they hated it. And apparently Nancy got up and left the room and said, I will not record this song. And it was quite heated. I know, I didn't realize this. Uh, and then somehow Ron talked him into it. He said, he said, look, I'll make you a deal. Let's record it. If you still hate it, I promise it won't go on the album. So they recorded it. I'm assuming they ended up liking it. And it became their, their comeback single which I'm I'm really pleased to So fabulous. Well, let's all have a listen to What About Love. I can't tell you. Oh my God, I love that song so much. I can't believe how these songs stand the test of time. It's like it could have been written yesterday. And sang that song beautifully. Yes, 
Yes, she did. I want to take a detour for a moment to the Northern Lights for Africa Famine and Relief cause in 1985. David Foster was approached by Quincy Jones, who was producing the USA for Africa Ensemble. He was interested in including a song by Canadians. David approached you to write together. Did you know each other before this? And how did you come up with the song Tears Are Not Enough, which ultimately raised $3.2 million for famine relief projects in Africa? Well, I've, I've known David since we were teenagers, pretty much, I think. He's from Victoria. I'm from Vancouver. And I first met him in Edmonton when he was working with Tommy Banks Orchestra. And then we mo- both ended up in Vancouver doing some sessions together. In fact, my first session when I was 18 was with David. And then he moved to Los Angeles and we lost touch for a few years. So on a particular day, Quincy phoned David and said, can you organize a Canadian song for African famine relief? And I was at Little Mountain Sound, the studio in Vancouver. There's two rooms, A studio, E studio. David was in the B studio with um, the Payolas. And I was in the A studio, I think probably doing a McDonald's commercial or something. And David came out in the lobby, and I'm the first person he saw. And he said, Jim, you have a home studio, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, we need to write a song. What are you doing tonight? So it was just, I just happened to be the first guy he saw. So David came over to my house that night. Uh, he already had the melody. Paul and Bob from the Paolas provided the title, Tears mm-hmm. Are Not Enough. And I, I wrote the beginning of, of the lyrics, and then Brian came over and, and joined in and, and helped finish it. So we wrote the song basically in one long session, one night. And yeah, it was it was quick. It was very you, quick. You had so many iconic Canadian artists singing that song, Tears Are Not Enough, Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, Neil Young. Anne Murray, John Candy, just to name a few. But there was one Canadian who wasn't able to record in Toronto as he was on tour in Europe, Bruce Coburn. So you make it to Hamburg, Germany to record with Bruce Coburn when he drops the bomb that he still wasn't sure he wanted to be part of the project. What happened? Before we hear more about this story, we're going to go on a short commercial break. Be right back. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740. And just before the break, Jim Valance was telling me about how he made it to Germany when Bruce Coburn dropped the bomb that he wasn't sure he wanted to be part of the song. I don't know. Well, I, you know, the only way to get Bruce on the recording, this is before email, you know, you couldn't send an MP3. Some, you had to literally go. So I flew to Hamburg, which was a very, very long flight. And met with Bruce, and that's when he said, yeah, I'm not really sure I want to do this. <laughs> so anyway, he did. He obviously ended up doing it. And we recorded Bruce's one line of lyric in a studio in Hamburg. And then I got right back on the plane and flew to back to Toronto where I picked up the master tape. 
and then flew to Los Angeles so we could marry Bruce's vocal with wow. the master tape. Yeah, that was that was the most difficult part of the process. I, I don't know why I volunteered <laughs> to do that. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, it's true. And these days you do a we transfer a couple of MP3 tracks via email, bing, bang, boom, you'd have it in an hour. I know. Wow. That's really amazing stuff. Last year, you got to hear Tears Are Not Enough at the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, sung by a whole new group of Canadian artists, Alessia Cara, Serena Ryder, among many others, were singing that song as the finale of a fantastic show you were part of the parent organization of the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, SOCAN. And you've described how you, for years and decades, you've described how you care deeply for Canadian songwriters, Canadian music. What defines Canadian music to you? And who are the Canadian artists that you admire? Well, you know, first of all, Canada is such a, a marvelous place to, to grow up and learn your craft. Uh, there's a real community, a real creative community in Canada. And I joined SOCAN very early in my career and then went on the board of SOCAN later. So I was very involved in, you know, copyright law and, and copyright reform and so on. But, you know, going way back, I mean, guess who? Gordon Lightfoot, you know, Johnny Mitchell, Neil Young. I mean, I was so proud as a Canadian to, to have these people, you know, be, be my mentors and, and to be so inspirational and to get to meet them years later. And, you know, I mean, it was such a thrill. So, especially being Canadian, I, I think in a lot of ways, the Beatles didn't come from London. They came from this little town up north mm-hmm. called Liverpool. And I used to think you had to come from Los Angeles to have a career. But, you know, coming from Vancouver, I think it was sort of a similar kind of thing. You're not in the thick of it. You're kind of peripheral. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You get to create your own space and your own sound. And um, so I'm I'm really thankful to have I've had my beginnings in Canada. I, I learned so much and grew much here. We're lucky to have you. So I, I have just a, just a couple of words about Gordon Lightfoot. Can you just share a couple of words that come to mind when you think of him? Oh, well, I mean, long before I knew him, just the, the, the music, you know, all the way back to Canadian Railway Trilogy, you know, which is just a, an, an amazing song. Uh, and when I finally got to meet him, what a sweet, generous, lovely man, you know, no... No airs yeah. Nico at all. He was just just a yeah. sweet, lovely guy, and a huge talent, and a yeah. wonderful songwriter, uh, such, and a great such loss. a great loss. I mean, he's not with us. What really, a great loss. yeah, that that that's yeah. been a hard one. I also have to ask you just briefly: Can you tell us more about getting to watch legends like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young at work and at play? Well, I mean, for Joni's vocal, <laughs> I was out in the studio sitting on the floor, cross-legged in front of her, looking up at her as she sang. I'm, I'm such a fan, so I, I hope I didn't embarrass myself in that moment, but I was just so enthralled and so awestruck to be, you know, not just watching her sing, but watching her sing something I'd written. So I, again, that was one of those pinch me moments. So, you know, in, in, in my career, the, the, the moments that have been really special are getting to meet, you know, and or work with my heroes, you know, Paul McCartney or Tony Mitchell or any, any number. It's just uh, such a privilege to have have that access to, to finally meet and talk with people that have inspired you, your, you know, since childhood, your entire life. Wow, wow, wow. You were able to recognize your passion from such a young age. And I know your son, Jimmy, has a band called Bob Moses. What advice do you give to him about his career that some lessons that you can teach him that you've learned along the way? You know what? I haven't given him advice. 
I just thought it was really important for him to do it on his own, and he he felt that also. In terms of style, you know, he's doing electronic dance music, which I really have no knowledge of, really. I mean, I think they're doing really great work, and, and I love what they're doing, but I have no way really to contribute. So I've enjoyed watching him pretty much the first decade. They, they could not get traction at all. So his story is similar to mine. Uh, he had trouble making a living at it, and I didn't make it that easy for him. It was important that he struggled and found his own way. So not a, not a lot of advice. He, he's really done it on his own. I'm really proud of him. And, you know, we have lots to talk about, shared experiences, but really I haven't uh, haven't given him any advice that I could point to. There, there's so many epiphanies in a career. I mean, in a career such as yours, the, the Order of Canada, being inducted to the Songwriters Hall of Fame, so many different things, platinum albums. But is there a moment for you where you just went, pinch me, it actually doesn't get any better than this. This is the best moment of my life. Wow, what a question. You know, again, it was probably... Meeting, meeting Paul McCartney for the first time was probably that moment. If that, was, if that could be bookends, like 11-year-old me watching the Beatles on television and however old I was when I met Paul, I think maybe I was 65. To me, that's kind of bookends, just like the culmination of literally a dream that came true, you know, wanting to do music and then ending up doing music and then meeting the guy that started it all for me, you know, that... I think that's one of the moments I could, could point to, just like, wow, how amazing was that? What is bliss for Jim Valance? I'm, I mean, musically, I'm, you know, you, you always try to do better than your last song. So I still, I'm not sure I've written my, my best song yet. So, so that journey continues. But, you know, there's more to life than music. And two months ago, my son gave me a grandchild. So that's, for me, that's you know, such a, a beautiful addition to, to my life. I'm just, uh, when your baby yeah. has a baby, there's, there's no way to describe how, how magical it is. That's so fabulous. I'm about to become one as well. So for the first time, so I'm really relating to that in August. Whoa, it's, it's so beautiful. It is, talk about pinch me. It is, it is so beautiful. That's incredible. It really I have to tell you, it's been a real honor to have you on the program, Jim. Really, it has Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you to hear your music? I'm not really a social media guy, but I, I do have a website, jimvalance.com, where I've tried to catalog sort of, you know, my songs and tell some of the stories that I, I hope would be inspirational and, and show people that there is not just a, a process, but if you dream something, you can, you can make it happen. Each week, we spotlight a fabulous person like Jim Valance. We don't have a guest like this every day. But if you are someone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way to achieve your bliss, reach out to me as well. And I'm also an Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Jim Valance, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanuziello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Lee Brack, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.